I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Welcome to episode 66 of the Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Tamara White of Wing in a Prayer Farm. At Wing in a Prayer Farm, they use wool as a means of creating a renewable and harmless way to return carbon to the earth. Tamara is a sustainable wool fiber farmer, homesteader, and natural dye grower. She started out as a hobby farmer with her family and has grown to scale over the years. Her farm consists of wool that she harvests from a variety of flocks such as alpacas, angora goats, cashmere goats, and a variety of purebred registered and crossbred sheep. I was super inspired by her story and I'm excited to share it with you all. Enjoy! Hello Tamara and welcome to the podcast. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background? Of course, I'm Tamara White, and I farm in Vermont on a fiber farm, and um, I have 55 sheep and 10 alpacas, 11 goats that are cashmere or angora, um, a a great cast of supporting <laughs> actors and actresses in that I have like a 50 plus poultry that lay eggs and, you know, uh, support my farm with other sources of revenue and f- four dogs, livestock, guardian dogs, house dogs, cats, and, oh, I, um, a few equine friends. Um, so these are the non-fiber related stars to the farm. Um, um, mini donkeys for fun and guardians and also a piggy we call her princess peppermint and she's our garden troll she kind of um keeps the weeds out of the dye beds i have raised gardens um and for all my dye beds and she kind of lives in the garden area and helps me manage that so i don't have to spend a lot of time weeding yeah i've been raising all of these animals for about 20 years, going from a hobby farm to a production farm in the last 10 years, roughly. Wow, that's amazing. And how much um, land are you using? And how much land were you using when you were a hobby farm versus going into a more commercial, larger farm? Well, that's a great question. When we started out as a hobby farm, it was um, because we were sort of pursuing the interests of the children. I homeschooled my kids for about 10 years. Well, exactly 10 years. And um, my children are all adults now, um, kind of left the nest. The one is back for now. She's helping me on the farm. She's finished all her schooling. And um, so while we homeschooled, um, we sort of really made the most of this homestead that we live on, which is 20 acres, but we only sheep farmed and had poultry on about five acres. We just had a a little, a handful, a small, small flock. And um, when the kids all left the nest and I found I had this infrastructure 
with a barn, which we kind of put the barn in after about eight years of farming and a little, you know, bit of sturdy fencing. I decided to upsize instead of downsizing and turn it into production. And so I started to use more of the property, which is a total of 20 acres. Um, so I rotational graze them. Today marks the start of putting in, um, you know, sort of a, a wave of some permanent peripheral fencing that we'd been needing to do for some time. I have some kind neighbors, some neighbors that are less enchanted with <laughs> the stories of my wandering flocks. So this is, uh, you know, there are always efforts to try to improve security as far as fencing goes for the animals. And um, uh, so hopefully we're using every bit. We have some forested property and that's where I graze the goats because they're more browsers. Um, so we're trying to use every single bit. And I, I mean, I, I move the sheep around to even nibble the lawn so I can, you know, I use the lawnmower as little as possible. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the story of, of how we move them around and, and what we're using as far as our property goes. And how did you begin this journey to creating a fiber farm? Like what drew you specifically to the various types of sheep and alpacas and animals that you're raising? Uh, well, so there are very many beginnings of the stories. And I, I guess one of them being that when the children chose the breed of sheep that we would get, which is, you know, it was part of our homeschooling project was that they did all the research. Um, they determined, you know, that in our region, Shetland sheep would be the best choice. They were small enough for us to handle. Children were considerably younger at the time. Uh, housing requirements would be minimal. They were well adapted to our region. So we have long winters and um, they're hardy breeds, so we wouldn't have to worry about um, trimming hooves as often or um, fussing with coats for their fiber and things like that. And they were a dual purpose breed. And um, so then th that would weigh in heavily in that we're sort of, I was raised in a way of believing that everything should be sort of functional and purposeful and meaningful. All of your actions and, and your, um, your work would be from one end to the other. So dual purpose would have meant that if we could market their fiber, then that would help sustain keeping them. But also if we had to market their meat, that they were an animal that would be suitable for that. So when we, got our first couple of Shetland sheep, we didn't have any intention of marketing them at all. We wanted to use them to graze our expansive lawn. <laughs> and we thought that that would be the best way to minimize sort of fossil fuel usage. Well, we fell right in love with them. They were such lovely animals. And I put an order in with the farmer that we'd gotten them from for a little ewe that we could then raise up and she could be bred and have some more lambs going forward. And that was how we started Wing in a Prayer Farm. Um, then 
when we had enough fleeces after a few years, Shetland sheep have like a two and a half to three and a half pound fleece at harvest. So that's not really enough to spin at a spinnery. And if you're a proficient hand spinner, it's great. But we were learning all of this along with raising our sheep. So we weren't, we weren't really, we didn't start in as fiber artists wanting a flock. We started in as homesteaders needing some help to, you know, to graze the lawns. And then we started getting into fiber art slowly. When we made yarn, we took it to the farmer's market to sell. And um, the funny thing was at the farmer's markets, nobody bought our yarn. So we had to have something to sell. So I made pies, which is you know, a kind of a thing that my grandmother had taught me when I was younger. Well, everybody bought the pies. And so that got attention to our farmer's market spot. And we would sell eggs and everybody would buy the eggs. But all this yarn sort of accumulated. So I would just gift it. Or um, the joke was that we could insulate our house with it, you know, over the course of time. And then um, when the children, when it was like eight years into the process of owning the sheep and the children were older and starting to go to college and all that, um, or processing the fiber, that was when I think I might have become active on Instagram. I can't remember the, the year I started using Instagram and Facebook more and sort of marketing my fiber online and opening an Etsy shop, things like that. So then I started to sell some yarn um, and going to the sheep and wool festivals to sell yarn. And I learned uh, mostly on my own about the fiber uh, market. So it was exciting because then I could finally get my yarn out there into the world. There was no question that I was crazy about my flocks and um, that I was, you know, loving fiber flux. So what happened was the more I got out there and peddled yarn, the more I got connected with people who had um, some fiber animals that they couldn't keep anymore. So I went from owning Shetlands to then owning Shetlands and Cotswolds just to help somebody out who couldn't keep them anymore. Or another person who had alpacas, but they'd hurt their back and they found out I had a nice farm and would I take their alpacas. Slowly, I turned into a fiber farm that had not just Shetland sheep, but Shetland sheep, Cotswold sheep, Dorsets and Cormos now and Wensleydales and um, Tease Waters. <laughs> Some, you know, it's all almost all been somebody heard of my farm and wanted to know if I could take their animals because they couldn't keep them anymore. Some of the animals I've actively, you know, sought out to sort of add to my fiber recipes, my yarns that I make. Like I thought, well, it would be nice to add a little Cormo to my mohair blend because I I ended up getting Angora goats um, through this sort of rescue and helping out way. And so that's the story how we went from just a couple of sheep, you know, sort of a hobby farm, a couple of Shetlands to now all of these different breeds and species of fiber animals here. And now I've done one more thing, which is sort of an add on. <laughs> it, it wasn't like I had enough endeavors or enterprises but in the last 
year and a half, I, I decided to pursue sort of a dream and a challenge, which was to in, get involved in a breed up program. So in the past, I haven't like sort of, um, I haven't categorized myself as a breeder per se, though I sell lambs often because like, um, lots of hobby farms or small fiber farms will come to me to purchase lambs because our animals are all very, very friendly because I, I socialize them so much because I love them all <laughs> and they all have names. And so folks that want that on their farm will come here. And so I'll set them up with a, a starter flock or add to the flock they have or whatever. But I, I didn't really consider myself a breeder per se, just a person who would, we would have lambs here and, and find homes for them just kind of, it's almost like an adoption process when animals go to new homes from here. I decided to purposefully breed up Valet black nose sheep. And so that, that has been my latest adventure in farming. It's kind of a whole other topic, but we could talk about it later if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've mentioned so many different varieties of sheep that I've never heard about. Can you speak to some of the different fibers that you're getting from them and how they differ from each other? Oh, sure. And that's a great question. So the Shetland sheep have the dual coat. They have like the, the longer, coarser guard hairs and then that soft, downy under fiber, which, you know, it just, it's amazing. And especially having so many breeds of sheep, I can compare one fleece to another. And I, I appreciate my Shetland sheep all the more for their fine, soft undercoat. It's just lovely. And most of my Shetlands have very few guard hairs, as it turns out. So they're a heritage breed, and, and everybody's fiber is the way it is, you know, quite purposefully. And I really love the story of why an animal's hair or wool or whatever is the way it is. The Wensleydales are long wools, as are Teeswaters and Cotswolds. I don't think I mentioned my Cotswolds before. And so they they all have similar long lustrous locks and they all tend to be a bit coarser. Like the story of the Cotswold fiber is that it was, you know, used for for making ships rope in in the Cotswold region in the UK. And Wensleydale fibers and Teeswater fibers will have degrees of fineness to them that might be considered softer, less coarse than Cotswold, but similar in that they're all wavy, curly, long, lustrous locks, very beautiful. Then the, um, let's see, the Dorset is considered a medium wool breed. I, I will usually use the Dorset fiber when I'm spinning like the Cormo fiber, the fine wool, because it's sort of a uniform staple length over the entire animal. And it's pretty fine, even though it's might be called a medium coarse breed. I, I think it tends to be finer. I think it can differentiate between animals on different farms and, you know, diet and stress. There's so many reasons why a fiber might be finer or coarser genetics. So our Dorsets, we have Miriam and Melody are uh, a medium to fine wool. 
other fine wools on my farm and I forgot to mention the merino. So I get, I get like lost in all the breeds we have here now are uh, <laughs> merinos, which everybody knows about merino wool, right? So mm -hmm. my merinos are, are colored merinos. There's like a deep chocolate, even a couple of them have a charcoal and sort of a, uh, a blackish hue to them. So that's the color of merino that we have on our farm and they are fine wools and it's the softest, cushiest fiber. And then the cormos, which are also fine wools and cormos uh, breeding goes back to the 50s in I think it's New Zealand or Australia where they crossed Corridales and Merinos to get this Cormo breed and came to the States in the 70s. So the Cormos have a fiber nearly exactly like the Merino fiber, only my Cormos are all white. Oh, they're like the, um, oh, what's that very cushy uh, mattress like that, that foam. Um, uh, memory foam? Uh, yeah, they're like the memory foam mattresses out in the field and it is just, <laughs> it's so it's so fun because they're all very friendly i think as i told you they're all very social and so they'll go out in the field and every day at least twice a day i'm out in the field with everybody because i i kind of move them from here to there rotationally grazing them doing health checks just spending time with them and literally i will just like collapse and you know, couch on them. They're so cushy and soft and squishy and lovable. And the, um, the sire of my many Cormos, because I have bred them over the years, his name is Peter Pan and he's an absolute dream boat. And you just go out and you just give him a big snuggle. And it's like, I don't know, it's like the princess and the pea, but no pea. It's like, it's like 20 mattresses. <laughs> it's so lovely. So let's see. The last breed of sheep that I now like have brought to the farm is this Valley Black Nose Sheep breed. And so what I have are lambs. They're in the first year of a breed up program. And the genetics for Valley Black Nose Sheep have to be brought into the United States via semen. So the ewes that had the lambs this spring, the little Valley Black Nose Sheep lambs, are teaswater ewes, so they call that a foundation ewe, when they artificially inseminate and, um, you know, start a breed-up program using a different breed. So next year or the year after, when my little lambs are old enough, then I would artificially inseminate them with the Valley black nose semen that would be imported from New Zealand or the UK. And then I would have the next generation. But I just want to say that regarding their fiber, they're known as a coarse, like long wool fiber animal. But I often tell folks, I'm no fiber snob. I love them. They are adorable. I mean, they are adorable. And they have like these splendid matching personalities. They're just the sweetest babies out there. But not just that, their fiber is very lustrous and silky, especially as lambs, right? And curly. And so they're going to be long wools and there's going to be a great use for their fiber. And anyone who goes around saying, oh, it's coarse, the valet black nose fiber is coarse. Well, you know, you could say that about many different types of fibers, but I think that there is like value and use to every natural fiber out there. So 
no matter what it tends ends up being, you know, as they get older and all of that, I, I'm not, I'm not a fiber snob, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put their fiber to good use. Um, then the alpacas obviously grow hair and it's soft and lovely. And, you know, there's all, all to do with, um, they have a different sort of harvest schedule. And I, sometimes I blend it with wool. Mostly I blend it with wool. I get at least like 20% wool into the alpaca spin usually to just give it a little, um, uh, a little memory. So it doesn't just, you know, uh, drape into infinity when you use it. It's lovely and soft, the alpaca fiber, but I like to add a little wool. And then the mohair from the angora goats uh, gets usually, I've never done 100% mohair, but I usually, and so I usually blend that, blend that with a little fine wool. I think I've gotten away from the main question, which was what kind of breeds, what were these, all these breeds? Um, so anyway, and then last but not least, I'll speak to the cashmeres, which has been a new project for me in the last year. They were rescues, and so they I combed mm. them to harvest. And so I'm learning about blending my cashmere, like with my Cormo. I'm just hand spinning with it now. I don't really have enough to produce yarns for the public yet. Wow, that's so interesting. So you said your cashmeres were rescues? How How... Mm-hmm. Where did, where were they rescued from? What's that story? Well, there were six of them and a woman who knew I had this farm was making a recommendation, um, that she, to a friend of hers who was having a hard time and needed a home for her, um, uh, cashmere goats. Well, I said no. And I said no, like from the fall of 2017 until the spring of 2018. And then I finally, you know, sort of was worn down. I really like to help if I can, when I can. Often the first thing I'll do is tell folks, well, I can't take your animals, but I will try to help you place them in a good home. And um, I thought, well, you know, she was really desperate and I would take them for an interim period. So I took her six cashmere goats last spring and all spring, summer, fall, I tried to find them a, a new permanent home come November I'd finally found somebody who would take them and when she got to the farm and realized that one of them was male Arthur she didn't want them all so she only wanted the females so Mm. these cashmere goats were in two groups of two families of three so I didn't want to break up Arthur's family it's he and his sister Crystal and his mom Martha so I decided that um you know, I was only going to send the three off with that woman that day. So she took them to her farm where she raises cashmeres. And we kept Arthur and Martha and Crystal because um, they're very familial. And I think it's stressful enough for an animal when they have to move in their life from one farm to another. So I didn't want to break mm. up the family because oftentimes it's the beginning of a an end. It, it, it'll, you know, the animals are stressed and their health will decline if things aren't going well. And so we kept Arthur and Crystal and Martha and Crystal had been a prize winning, um, cashmere on the farm that she had been on before. Like they had had the troubles in their life that led them to have to get rid of the animals. Crystal was yearly shown at the local fairs and festivals. And she always won top prize for her fiber because she's, 
She's got some amazing cashmere fiber. So mm. we we worked with, there's a, a cashmere farm about 40 minutes from here run by nuns. And I worked with them and I said, hey, look, I think I'll go ahead and now that she's staying here on the farm and I've decided, you know, okay, we're raising cashmere's now too. I, I was I was just kind of tired of actively looking for a home. Um, I decided I would try to find room over the winter for the three of them. Then let's go ahead and breed Crystal. And so we did. And, um, well, I worked with the nuns and it was the funniest thing. It's kind of a long story, but I mean, all my stories are long. It's funny in that I, <laughs> I knew when Crystal was, um, she was, uh, in heat and she was in estrus. I, I put her in the back of the car and well, I called up sister Mary and I said, Hey, um, crystals in heat. Do you have a buck that's available? <laughs> and she was like, well, she's like, I'm getting ready to go to the healing service. But at around three o'clock, the sisters and I are having tea and you could come by then. So it was really very sort of funny that I popped her in the car that afternoon and drove over and, uh, sister Mary Elizabeth and I were bundled to the nines because it was bitterly cold out. It was November and we found a nice handsome buck for Crystal and introduced her to him and found them a a quiet spot and then I went in and had tea. <laughs> I, I went in and I had tea with the sisters and it was and they're all knitting and spinning and it was, you know, and they have a little store with all their cashmere and it was really uh, it was it was really a bright spot in the year for me. I I thought that it was kind of funny and Crystal was happy I wouldn't do it if I didn't think Crystal was fine and then after tea, you know, we were like, well, let's go see how they're doing. So we went out and it was going on five and the sun was setting and it was just beautiful. And it's the time of year when winter like really closes in and shuts down the day. So I needed to make a decision. So um, we thought, well, you know, it's getting so close to bedtime. Let's let her have an overnight because we'll put them inside where they'll be fine. And then I'll come back on the morrow. And so we did that. And so I, I went home and um told my my kids that were visiting about it and so it was kind of it was it was a fun thing to to laugh about and the next morning got in the car and made the trip over again and picked up crystal and bid adieu to the nuns and then you know five months later she's had her gorgeous little kid she had a single Aww. and um, yeah we named him christopher robin and he is um sweet and crystal's not been having the easiest time of it um because she was like, I don't know if I told you, but she was a little bit older. And so generally when you breed them, when they're a little bit older, you can have complications. So we are just really grateful for her being healthy and him being healthy. But I've had to like milk her every day because she's to avoid mastitis. We've been having to manage her a little more hands-on than I wanted to, but everybody's healthy for the most part. Anyway, his fiber, little guy, Christopher Robbins fiber is incredibly silky and soft so you know I'm very excited now that we've added cashmere to the farm and um, I think what's going to happen is um, you comb them out once a year it's going to take me a couple of years to accumulate enough to be able to share it um, commercially so mm. um, I'm just gonna you know it's going to be my special treat to to play around and hand spin 
Wow, that's so fascinating and such a beautiful story that um, we often don't hear about where fibers come from. Yeah, it all starts with the animals, right? Yeah, and it's so inspiring to hear the way that you talk about and the love and the passion you have for, for taking care of your animals. It's so beautiful. Well, thank you. It's really like um, very natural for me, though I didn't start out as a little girl thinking one day I want to be a fiber farmer, right? Um, (laughs) Although, you know, I try to instill that now because I have lots of school groups come visit the farm and, you know, so many people really enjoy animals or enjoy an outdoor life or enjoy the idea of farming, but don't necessarily think that it is... uh, an actual career and um, so I I try to share that as widely as I'm able to Um, you know that shepherds and shepherdesses are required in life and um, taking care of animals in for this purpose that I do is a real thing that you you know you could do I I didn't realize it until I was in it for myself that it was an actual profession but you know for me it's a vocation Hmm. prior to to getting your first flock did you have experience with farming and also with hand spinning or did you kind of start when you first started that project with your kids when I was um Younger, I lived in Massachusetts in the Berkshires for a while um, with my family on my mom's family's farm. It had been a dairy farm. It wasn't a working farm while I lived there, but we always kept like some poultry for eggs or for chicken for meat or uh, pigs. I had a pony. But I didn't have, like, there were no fiber animals on the farm. And it was very much, even though it wasn't production farm when I lived there, it was a very utilitarian farm. And, like, the uncles raised a steer for me and things like that. So it was sort of a traditional homesteading farm that way. So I had some exposure to farm life. And so I didn't have any background in spinning. I had some background in knitting and crochet and sewing. I was raised going to 4-H and, you know, my, my family had a lot of quilters. So, um, fiber arts were sort of close, but not as close. Like I, I wasn't as involved as I am now. When we got our sheep, we, were really excited about hand spinning and learning with um, drop spindles and things like that. And the kids picked it up instantly and we got a wheel and they were so good at it. And it was harder for me when my children were a little bit older. I took some lessons. It was still a little bit hard for me to master. Finally, it was after my children were in college. I had met a woman who was a hand spinner and to this day she hand spins my fleeces and turns my roving uh, or turns my mohair into roving and she hand knits mittens that I'll sell at fiber festivals so that we can have like a hundred percent handmade hand spun 
mittens from the farm to sell. But she was um, somebody that I became friends with and became my mentor with spinning. So I decided that I would like invest the time that it took to go visit Debbie. She lived about an hour and a half away. Well, she still does. And learn how to spin from her because she had offered to help me. So that was about five or six or seven years ago. And so for that one winter, each month I would take a day and go visit her and bring my wheel. And she just was very patient with me. And so through the one-on-one, I was able to gain on the skills that I needed and then come home and practice so that now I can spin for myself and I love to, it's my favorite thing to do. Wow. That's super fascinating. I've seen that you also grow and you dye things naturally on your farm. Do you grow dye plants as well? I do. I had just finished the last sentence by saying it's my favorite thing to do with regards to hand spinning. But I <laughs> lied because <laughs> I am also crazy about naturally dying. And um, so I have a dye garden and I raise things, you know, in the dye garden that are annuals like marigolds and calendula. I have a lot of indigo. The indigo sometimes reseeds, so I call it an annual, but sometimes it'll be a biennial. I have um, Hopi red amaranthus, which is itself sows. It's an annual, but I never have to seed it because it, it reseeds itself. Then um, what else? I have Hopi sunflowers. I love those. Um, gosh, Coreopsis zinnias, dahlias, you name it. And the dye garden is, uh, you know, full of it. And so I made raised beds in the dye garden because I don't have enough time to like be on my hands and knees weeding all of the time. So the raised beds allow me to spend as little time as possible weeding so that, you know, like where calendulas are concerned, I have to pick them every single day when they're blooming. That's how you ensure more growth as well as um, get the best color from the blooms. And so I have a great big like sort of uh we, we call it, sorry, it's like a labyrinth out there of all the dye beds. But then I also forage from the surrounds. Like this past weekend, uh, my daughter's getting married this fall. And so we're dyeing all of the fiber, all the textiles that she's going to be using for her dress. And um, so, yeah, so she, we worked hard all weekend to create the vat of color that's going to be the jacket that she's going to make that goes with her dress. She's, um, she's designing, designed it all by herself. And so, um, so we did swatches all weekend of different colors. And so we used lilac leaves because right now the lilacs are just going out of bloom and, you know, we're able to prune lots of branches and then take the leaves and make a big vat of lilac and and then modify. We did seven different modifications to see what colors we would like the most so that she could pick what color she liked. And then after the swatch dried, she settled on which, which one she liked. And so we wrote down the recipe and that's what we're going to dye the fabric for her jacket in. So um, it's just really fun. And that's totally 
you know, for fun, for pleasure. It's going to be a very meaningful wedding dress when she finishes because we're going to eco print the skirt together and it's, it's going to be very, um, very much of our farm and we're, she's getting married here on the farm in the fall. But the other thing is like all of this fiber, all of these yarns that I make come from these animals that I can look right out the window at and I have a relationship with. So I can't imagine sending them somewhere else to be dyed by other hands, by other means that in my mind are just maybe going to make the earth a little bit less healthy for the future than the way I'm doing it. I'm using things that are growing or I'm collecting right here like acorns from the woods or bark from the tree that fell. All of these things that are right here and using a minimal amount of water so not wasting water and there are the animals grazing on one side and there's me on my back porch dying with the things that are right around us and it just feels very uh, symbiotic as well as like like I don't know it it's magical and wonderful and it's all feel good so the colors aren't necessarily competitive with like a acid dyes or like the bright bright colors in the stores and the, you know there's usually softer muted shades of whatever but for me I I feel like it's more important to kind of do what you can and and do what's good for the world and so the meaning of all of these colors that we make right here uh, is what I find is is more colorful than anything out there on the store shelves but the other thing is that it allows me to be creative in ways that like simply mucking the stalls or health checks with the animals doesn't you know a lot of the tasks of farming are are you know it's hard physical work or it's also there's a lot of heartbreak you know like I get to be a midwife when we're bringing in lambs and kids but I'm also like a death doula when I have to usher you know out somebody who's unwell or we have an accident or you know when when somebody dies it's 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 a hard part of my job here it's really hard for me and then the actual physical work like you know building fences and cleaning the barn and filling buckets and hauling and on hay and all of that so when I get to naturally die it's like it's like arts and crafts for the farmer <laughs> I love it <laughs> wow that's that's so so enlightening you know especially the part where you're talking about sort of fostering life and also fostering or having to deal with the death I am kind of curious because, you know, you're a fiber farmer, but you are a protein fiber farmer. What might have been some of the challenges of starting your farm? What are the challenges of sustaining your farm and what your surrounding community is like? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, so uh, being a protein far fiber farm um, something I think I would pick again if given the choice because uh, before I started this adventure I never thought oh well I'd rather raise cellulose fibers for because it, it didn't start for me as a fiber pursuit it started for me as 
uh, a connection with the animal kingdom. And um, so I'm suited for the challenges. I didn't know I was, you know, I didn't until you, until you're in that first situation where you're, you're working with a you to help her have the healthy lamb or you're, you're sitting with your old timer who's not going to make it another day. Uh, until you're doing that, you don't know that you can do it. You don't want to think about although a lot of people do doubt that they have that in them they're like oh well it's it'd be too hard for me I couldn't handle that no it's true I couldn't handle it either or so I would say or so I thought and then I was always squeamish and here I am yesterday wrestling with 10 alpacas who don't want to get their <laughs> shots you know and they're trying to spit on me and kick me and all of that but hey they need their <laughs> shots or else they're not going to be healthy you know and so like you do what you have to do and you do those things and it is challenging but nothing in life that's worth anything to me comes you know easily I mean I'm not saying life is hard I'm just saying that it takes work but it's so rewarding and so I would be a fiber farmer again with with up you know raising protein fibers and that because that means that I get to have this relationship with these living creatures. I love gardening and I love plants like my house is full of them and I always have and it would spare me having to make the decision to call an old timer or somebody who was injured. I mean it would spare me having to wrestle with alpacas if I was raising linen or flax or cotton right it would would spare me that but there would be other challenges that I would have to wrestle with and um, I'm not sure at this point in my life that I would would I like I couldn't have lambs in the spring if I was raising cotton I mean <laughs> it'd be different I you know I I get so much out of my relationship with all of my animals here and I also believe strongly in how it's such a natural cycle how like I often will reference grass to garment like they're out there the resource that I have here is this 20 acres and there they are the perfect um, the perfect mechanism for converting the grasses and the forage on this acreage um, into a cleaner atmosphere because you know they nibble the they nibble the the forage they they prune them and um, because they need to sustain their bodies so they're getting calories and energy and life from the grasses and then the nibbled grasses have a stronger root system because they're healthier the animals are fertilizing as they walk along they have these little hooves that aerate the soil so the actual turf underneath is stronger and better and able to draw down carbon from the atmosphere making it a cleaner earth and meanwhile they're just you know peacefully growing fiber that we can then harvest and use for all manner of of textiles and um so i feel like like they're like they're amazing. The the whole joke about you know, uh, turning, you know, turning grass into wool, and that's the superpower. It's just it's real. Um, so I love that about raising protein fiber, 
animals and all that like they are out there doing for us without chemicals and without machinery and you know I just put up that fence and I introduce them to the the space where they're to graze and then they go ahead and they're out there doing the beautiful wonderful thing are you working on any new projects that you would like to talk about um well I will say that the work is constant and some people find that that is you know sort of overwhelming it's it's pretty tiring and it's constant but at the same time it's exhilarating and exciting and I'm always thinking of new projects and like I mentioned in the last year this this breed up program project of mine which is sort of like separate entirely of being you know a fiber farmer um, it's sort of my way of having a vacation I don't actually take a vacation or go anywhere but I it's okay I'm where I love to be and getting away is hard but like I had always thought these valley black nose sheep were darling and lovely and if I could have any type of sheep oh I'd want them the thing is I can't really answer that question very well because I love all the sheep and every time I see a, a different sheep that we don't have oh I love it and it could be it doesn't have to be purebred I just I'm crazy about sheep but I thought oh I really want to try to breed up this valley black nose sheep on in Vermont here because we don't have them here yet so that's a project that I'm involved in and you know it, it requires resources but the resources um, hopefully I've I've like created a um, like sort of a a business plan for myself that will support this project so the idea being that I would sell the lambs not all of them because I would keep the ewe lambs here to breed up but that I would sell the ram lambs to support the breed up because you have to you know pay for technicians and the veterinary that ve veterinarian that laparoscopically artificially inseminates the sheep and so it's like intensive in that way as far as resources go so um, that's not something that I usually do that kind of breeding project but I'm really pleased so far I've got these four beautiful healthy happy lambs here and so it's been a great beginning and I'm just gonna take it a year at a time uh, I'm I'm not afraid of the challenges because I love sheep and I love caring for them and so I feel like I have a really good foundation for supporting a project such as this um, and it's added another facet to my farm and so I other than that I have like some you know mostly the same yarns that I'm making that I know by now are good yarns for my farm and trying um, like trying out my you know my my cashmere for fun um, in the last year I've had my Shetland woven into blankets by a weaver who's about an hour and a half away so it's like a hundred percent local products because my mill is less than an hour away the sheep are right here the woman who hand weaves is an hour and a half it's like I try to do as much as of that kind of um, local supported fiber work here as possible um, the blankets are beautiful and I have I haven't bought one for myself but you know if 
I've been selling them uh, and I'll probably bring them to fiber festivals going out throughout the year to sell more along with my my yarns um, I make wool duvets and I'll continue to make those I use the waste wool and get it processed into batting and then make you know sort of comforters duvets with that so I, I have no waste I use um, other waste wool for um, making like laundry dryer balls um, so literally no waste the last of the waste wool per se goes to sort of um, composting around the or you know mulching around some plants otherwise I um, I must say that um, I have events here all of the time shearing school and fiber workshops and things like that so nothing necessarily new just more of the same so where on social media and the internet can people follow your work and come visit you at one of your fairs I share a lot about the farm on Instagram and the handle is wing and a prayer farm and it's all one word and I also have a Facebook page wing and a prayer farm and I'm on Twitter and on Twitter I'm sort of more on there silently because I like to read about um, farms around the world and it's I find that Twitter is a good place for me to do that so I am on Twitter oh, it's just wing and a prayer f like F no f no arm no <laughs> I ran out of letters for wing and a prayer from so it's wing and a prayer and then I'm on um on patreon we have a oh patreon web page now um creator account so I have subscribers and I like to put like you know different levels of farm content on their how-to videos or uh this past few months it's been a lot about the lambs and the kids being born and um also I have a website which is wing and a prayer farm dot com um and I'm on Pinterest wing and a prayer farm <laughs> um I'm not necessarily on Pinterest as a producer as a content sharer as much as a consumer I really enjoy you know checking things out on Pinterest but on those other ways probably Instagram primarily I share regularly and interact with followers regularly um, to come to the farm to visit in person once a year I host an open farm and this year it's on August 31st and Taproot magazine is sponsoring a maker market here so we'll set up our barn with juried artisans and have lots of great um, uh, you know market vendors to share as well as I'll do farm tours and usually have interactive um, stations so I I personally share with all the visitors and it's free on that day and it's from 10 to 1 and we're here in Shaftesbury Vermont if person wants to visit the farm outside of open farm day or outside of a workshop event because on my website you can see all the different workshops we host then I like to have like some email correspondence to set up a good time and date because I'm like solo farming and I sometimes I have to 
go get groceries or go to the post office or whatnot. So we need to kind of set up a, an appointment for if a person wants to come visit the farm. And I happily and love sharing the farm with visitors. I just like to set it up ahead of time. But there's also like, like the weather can shut down a visit. Somebody was supposed to come to the farm yesterday and I had to you know, defer the visit because the, the heavens had opened up. And so there was no walking around the farm in that. Um, so anyway, those are all the ways in which a person can reach me or see the farm online. Awesome. So before you go, we have one question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Oh, um, Well, I would love to share that you can find small farm fibers very easily nowadays because of the internet and because of our connectivity to each other through the maker world. And so I'm not sure if it's like wisdom or advice as much as uh, feeling a little bit like the Lorax and that I need to like speak for the trees. I encourage everybody to try to find local or small farms to support first before going to like commercial products, commercial industry fiber. Um, because I think I believe so strongly in my heart that it makes such a difference to support a small farm that's, you know, got a good, good, um, doing good work and it's so meaningful and, um, helping a local community to thrive and grow when you want, when you, when you put your faith and your trust and your dollars into a small farm. So not just me, but anybody, you know, wherever you are, if you can find somebody locally to support, um, I appreciate that and the animals will appreciate that or the farmer will appreciate that and it, it makes a really big difference in a small way and that would be that would be my my request and then also uh, you know not to make light of it but um, try not to be a fiber snob <laughs> try to embrace all the properties of all the fibers and see how you can enjoy and love them Wow. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining My the pleasure, podcast. LaShawn. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. I really enjoyed speaking with Tamara, and I hope you all enjoyed hearing her story as well. If you are interested in finding out ways to support Tamara's farm or to visit her shop, you can find links to her site at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 66. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Jacqueline James, a textile artist in the UK specializing in hand-dyed and hand-woven rugs. So stay tuned next Monday for that conversation. And until next time, happy weaving! Happy weaving!